Hello, it's Tuesday, February the 1st. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up... We're talking about another unforeseen consequence of COVID, a surge in opioid addiction. Also, in Bradford, undercover women police officers are taking to the streets to tackle an upsurge in catcalling. How worried should we be about it? Also, the number of women who are gambling online, and you know who's to blame? It's that wretched pandemic. But first, the police are investigating up to 12 Downing Street party events for breach of lockdown rules. I'm speaking to Nick, Mr Loophole Freeman, about how potentially Boris and the rest of the Number 10 gang could wriggle out of any legal difficulties. So we now know via Sue Gray's report that the Metropolitan Police are looking into 12 Downing Street parties, events, call them what you will, for alleged breaches of lockdown rules. Three of three of them, apparently the Prime Minister attended, including one potentially in his flat, where there were the sounds of the winner takes it all beating from the upstairs apartment. Nick, known as Mr Loophole Freeman, who's the head of Freeman & Co Solicitors, he's a lawyer who's advised many people in the public eye on how to um, get out of potential motoring offences, if I'm allowed to say that, thinks he knows how number 10 could potentially avoid any party gate finds and he joins me now uh, nick you're called mr loophole because you have been a specialist in exploiting legal loopholes to get people off of what other people might think are legitimate charges i'm thinking david beckham for instance yeah it's um well it's just a law really it's they're not they're not loopholes it's just looking at the law and uh, obviously using the law of the land to to assist one's clients that that's what the law, law is there for it applies to everybody whether you're david beckham or whether you're just a ordinary folk who no one's never ever heard of of course we have heard of the prime minister and um, there's no reason if if the law is in place that assists him uh, and anyone else affected by these parties why why they shouldn't uh, avail themselves of the law of the land the, the, and in this particular case it's the magistrates courts act 100 section 127 right so what does and and, and I, I see you're saying that if prosecutors were aware the parties were taking place. That would bar any proceedings. How could they know that parties had been taking place? Well, and I'm not saying they do know. And, and what right. I said when I was interviewed was, if there was yeah. this scenario, and one yes. imagines a situation where people arrive at the door, the, the 10 Downing Street's obviously well-pleased. It uh, is. And I imagine, the officers, yeah, I imagine the officers on the door would be sort of quizzical about, well, these people are arriving with bottles, um, it's during coronavirus lockdown. Um, this is slightly unusual, and I would have thought that the officers on the door would probably, and, and this is supposition, they would probably say, Sergeant, they'll call through, Sergeant, what should we do? Do we let them in, or do we turn a blind eye? What do we do? This is, this is not a situation that they would probably anticipate they would have to deal with. And if the sergeant, and if they've done this, and then the sergeant says, well, I need to get some advice and speaks to the superintendent, and the superintendent then thinks, I need some legal advice. If it ends up at the door of the prosecutor, the prosecutor, in my view, could then well be on notice, and the six months kicks in from that time. Um, but obviously, for that to happen, there would have to be a chain of events um, to, to precede that. Obviously, if, if, if the officers have simply let people in, um, then what, what I say is irrelevant because the, the law states that the, the offences must be charged within three years of happening, but also within six months of the prosecutor concluding there is sufficient no, uh, evidence to prosecute. 
Um, and so it, it's that latter aspect. I don't think there's going to be any problem if there are going to be charges. We don't even know that there are. But if there are going to be charges, the three years, in my view, will not, not cause a problem to the prosecution. But the six months might, dependent upon how this is ha- how it's been dealt with. And, you know, my recollection is that the Met were initially reluctant to investigate this. We don't know why. And then once the Sugre, um, Sugre started to investigate it, they, they capitulated. They thought they did want to investigate it. What was going to be a full report has now sort of been heavily redacted um, pending the investigation of, uh, of the Met Police. So we're not sure really where we are, but one can only speculate. And, and what I've done is try to put forward what I think is a, a possible scenario, which seems a sensible scenario, because anyone who has allowed um, members of the public, whether they work at Downing Street or not, to come to a party it, on a it, prima facie in breach of those regulations is almost complicit in that breach and there may be criminal consequences from that from the police perspective so that's why i would have assumed that, that those who are opening the door would say mm, i'm going to just cover my back here uh, and the, if that's happened then as I, i've already stated to you that there is a sequence of events that may well have happened may well have ended up with with a legal opinion from the cps saying Absolutely not. Or yes, under these circumstances, I, I don't know. It's it's supposition. Yeah, two things I'd say to you there, uh, Nick, is, is that um, I've written about this in the Mail today, and it's become uh, rather synonymous with these parties. The, we know, particularly on wine, wine Friday evenings, the wine evenings on a Friday, uh, a member of staff from the press office was dispatched to the local co-op or the local Tesco to fill mm-hmm. up the, uh, the the walk your walk your long uh, the, the the sort of case you get which you put on an aeroplane with wheels. They they would take around six to eight bottles of prosecco. Now you have to go through you have to go clunking through the front door of Downing Street or clunking through the back door of Downing Street. You have to go through the security wing. It's it's inconceivable that the police security would not have picked up the fact that bag was clunking with booze. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, put it quite aside from who's funded the booze. We'll, yes, we'll put that on quite. one side for the moment. Yeah. I hope it's, yeah. I hope it's not the taxpayer. It's me um, too. Um, but, but assuming that there's, no, there's nothing improper there, um, they, they must be on notice. And it's for that reason that I say, I can't believe they just said, fine, I'm turning a blind eye, because their jobs are on the line, aren't they? Yes. So they, want, and we they all... surely would want to cover their own back. Yeah, just finally, if you get the call from somebody in the Prime Minister's office or uh, somebody in the Cabinet office, perhaps the Cabinet Secretary, all sorts of people are going to be dragged into this, uh, saying, how would you like to represent us, Mr Freeman? What's your hourly rate? Would you jump at the chance or would you run a mile? No, I'd definitely jump at the chance. I think, would you, have you, and how, can you tell us? Have you had the call yet? I certainly haven't had the call, no. Um, <laughs> no, I haven't had the call. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to hold my breath. But of course, if, if one has the opportunity, because it, it, if, if there were fixed penalties issued, and of course, you know, some of the, the, the fixed penalties are not for an insignificant amount because we're told there are several parties. And assuming that's true, the amount doubles. And also we've got the, the organization of the parties and whoever organized the party, the, the fines are potentially much more su- substantial. So whoever is interviewed and whoever may have committed an offence, if they're offered a fixed penalty, they don't have to accept it. Um, if they accept it, then, of course, they, they are basically accepting their yeah. culpability and not they are. seeking yeah. to use the law to assist them. Uh, and from a career perspective, that may be the way to go. But there may be those yeah. who think, actually, no, I, I'm not taking this on the chin. I am going to fight it. 
then then of course is disclosure issues where the prosecution have to disclose issues which undermine their case that, that, that they have a legal obligation to do that uh, and that's where this particular discrete point might become significant that's why i think it will be scotland yard will be praying that anybody they think requires a fixed penalty uh, takes notice it. will ex- takes it uh, and as yep. you say, who knows? I suspect if the Prime Minister's uh, given one, I think he'll take it. Uh, and he can pack it in his bag when he leaves number 10 for the last time. Well, I was going to say, I think there'll be other consequences if he was given a fixed penalty and took it. I don't think it was Certainly straightforward would. as that. <laughs> I think you're right. Uh, look, it's always good to talk to you. That's Nick, known as Mr Loophole Freeman of Freeman & Co. Solicitors, on how potentially this police investigation could all go wrong in terms of those who want to see the Prime Minister prosecuted. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. West Yorkshire Constabulary has placed undercover female police officers on the streets of Bradford to tackle catcalling. Now, this follows complaints from students in the city, female students, of course. Catcalling from a vehicle can result in a fixed penalty of £100 or a fine of £1,000 if taken to court. Uh, Georgina Lamming is campaigns manager at Plan International, which is a global girls' rights charity, and she joins me now. Uh, Georgina, how big a problem is catcalling? Is it getting worse? What's your, what's your, what's your understanding? So I think that what we're talking about here is is public sexual harassment, which is a daily occurrence for girls as young as 10, where they are harassed, followed, sometimes touched. So catcalling can be something that comes to mind when we think about sexual harassment, but actually it's way broader and bigger than that. Um, And I guess the real problem is, is that it means that girls are living in fear, that it restricts their freedom, they feel not comfortable you know, going out for a run on their way to school, it means that they're questioning their daily activities and that's impacting their mental health. So it's a huge problem. And and clearly the idea of using undercover women police officers is working because we know in an incident last week, a van was stopped after the driver was shouting, not knowing he was shouting lewd abuse at plainclothes women officers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great to see action on this. However, I guess when it comes to this specific case, it's a bit of a blunt tool. Right now, there is no one law that protects girls and all people, quite frankly, from public sexual harassment. In fact, our laws date back to the 1600s, um, really. And so instead of having these kind of piecemeal approaches um, and hoping that someone gets called by an undercover police officer, what we really need is a proper law on public sexual harassment that protects people because, um, yeah, it, it can't be down to individual cases to kind of cover and protect girls, I guess. Yeah. Now, interesting, I wonder what you make of the reaction to this um, campaign in Bradford. Some people have criticised the police for not focusing on what they regard as more serious crime. Uh, others, of course, backing the operation in a city where there has been a history of girls being targeted by grooming gangs. Yeah, so public sexual harassment is an everyday occurrence, and right now, girls just aren't protected from it. Um, our laws are piecemeal, so it's really great that someone is trying to take action on this piece. I think that often these kind of instances um, get downplayed, but really what we're talking about is really young girls 
having sexually explicit things said to them on a daily daily basis just as they're walking down the street and that is really serious it's a restriction of freedom you know um and it's happening to girls you know whether they're 12 or 21 it's happening to them so it's important that we do tackle it um but but yeah it shouldn't really be something that individual police forces are having to address they need uh, that overarching law that really backs them up rather than having to yeah. do these kind of piecemeal approaches i guess Two two things to put to put you here. Um, first of all, uh, it's not it's the worry as well. Catcalling is one thing, and it's offensive and demeaning and upsetting for girls, women who are subjected to it. But there's also must be a fear in some of the victims of it that this could, is, could potentially this ghastly bloke go further uh, and physically intimidate a girl. And secondly, what is the law? that you would like to see in place that would mean Bradford wouldn't have to go in alone with undercover police officers. They could just simply dust off whatever law it is and presumably not one that dates back to the 1600s. Yeah, absolutely. So girls, you know, they experience someone shouting at the street, but they don't know what that's going to lead to. And public sexual harassment is actually lots of different behaviour. So it might start with someone making a really vile, sexually explicit comment but it might also be following you or cornering you in an alleyway. And so I think there is something about, you know, yes, catcalling is one of those pieces, but there's lots of different behavior that comes under harassment that comes under the same bit of the law. So, So in terms of a new law, we'd be looking for something that's completely proportionate. So something uh, that, that like tackles different types of public sexual harassment in different ways. So the law that covers, all of those cases that I've talked about um, and in some places like France they have laws where it could be an on-the-spot fine and for something much more serious um, it could be something different and that would be up to the courts to decide but I guess the really important thing is that a new law would mean that this is taken seriously it's not piecemeal that the police know what powers they have because right now it's this this weird kind of patchwork and that law from the 1600s is about a man urinating off a balcony in Covent Garden and why are we using that to protect girls in 2022? Yeah, why are we? That really is out of date. <laughs> yes, definitely. And just finally, before I let you go, Georgina, is there, I mean, have you got something, are you talking to government, are you in conversation with ministers, are they looking at doing something about this or not? So we've had um, young girls take their personal experiences and stories right to Pretty Patel and tell the them Secretary, that we need yeah. this new, yes, this new sexual harassment law. And the government have promised to look into gaps in the law and consider this law that we've drafted up. Um, but we need them to move more urgently. This is an everyday occurrence, and the police need those that that law to help them when tackling these crimes. So we we watch and wait. <laughs> All right, well, that's very interesting. That's Georgina Lamming. She's campaigns manager at Plan International UK, which is a global girls' rights charity. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos and opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. A new survey commissioned by GambleAware has found that as many as one million women in the United Kingdom are suffering from negative consequences as a result of gambling, and mainly it's online gambling. 
although there's also lottery and casinos thrown into the mix. Zoe Osman is the chief executive of GamblerWare, and she joins me now. Um, Zoe, this is a big poll. 12,000 women you look talk to, uh, 4% of them, uh, uh, indicating they're suffering the negative effects of gambling, which does work out at a 1 million women. First question I have to ask you, particularly if it's online gambling, has this been exacerbated by perhaps working from home or being at home because of the pandemic? Absolutely. It's been exacerbated by, by two factors. One is the accessibility of uh, online gambling. I mean, the fact that we all walk around with our smartphones. And then, of course, with the, um, with the lockdown, it was a period of huge uncertainty. And with it came a feeling of isolation and stress that, that most of us experienced. So for a lot of women, and what we've seen is that uh, there was a huge increase in a turn towards online gambling during that period. How much are they gambling? I haven't got the financial numbers, but suffice to say, they were gambling more than they ever have been. Um, and I think the, the point here, which is, is worth making, is the fact that actually there's a very clear difference between the way men and women gamble. Um, so for men, you associate it with sort of going down to the bookies, that's yeah. a rather more traditionally male-dominated environment. Yeah. Um, and then obviously sports betting, which is sort of the, uh, the very popular um, uh, leisure entertainment, should we say at best. Mm. Uh, whereas for women, it's much more uh, around games that appear quite simple and very readily available. They appear a little bit like sort of free digital games that we all have on our phones, but of course come with the additional lure of the financial gain. Um, and those include um, bingo, scratch cards, online uh, casino games. And um, they're sort of presenting women with an opportunity to sort of escape that stress of everyday life. Oddly, oddly, they do, they're doing it to escape the stress of everyday life. But if they get hooked, they then be get involved in stress of an in far more different scale. Uh, and if they can't get off the gambling, it could lead to all sorts of serious consequences, Zoe. Absolutely right. So first of all, to that point, we know that uh, women are far more stigmatised than men uh, for their gambling. And with nearly 40% saying they feel embarrassed and, yeah. and don't want people find out about it compared to just 22 percent for men so you know we need to break down those barriers we need to get people to have more conversations about the subject um and and the second thing is is we need to make women um and in fact most people but particularly women with this campaign aware of the early warning signs and those include um losing track of time spending more than they can afford and keeping their gambling secret from others, hiding it, which is, of course, all too easy when you end up uh, gambling a lot from home uh, in your own bedroom and in your own environment. Now, your your organisation, uh, GamblerWare, has launched the first campaign targeted at women to help those with a problem to seek support. So what exactly are you doing? So we're doing two things. We are Well, first of all, we're having a conversation, which I think is important about the subject. Um, secondly, raising awareness around those early warning signs, which I touched on, so that people know what to look out for in terms of making sure that when they gamble, they're doing it safely. And then thirdly, uh, directing them to support uh, for tips and advice um, and also some treatment advice if people need it at the Be Gamble Aware website. Interesting. What do you think also about this um, report that the NHS wants to ban gambling companies from funding addiction clinics? Did you read about that? I did indeed. And, and it's not something that we are aware of. But, you know, that is that is something that I'm sure is being explored and discussed. Ultimately, um, 
we are a very independent of the industry. Yeah. But secondly, you know, it, it, this is a this requires a whole system approach. So, you know, treatment through the NHS is an important part, but there's also other other ways of getting treatment, such as, for instance, contacting the National Gambling Helpline, that will direct people to the right type of treatment that they need. And that might be NHS or it might be counselling. Um, it, it depends upon what what treatment is best required for that individual. You almost preempted my last question, actually, Zoe, because I was going to say there'll be some women, I suspect, listening to this podcast or knowing some female friends uh, who have got a gambling problem. What is your advice to someone who thinks they've got a gambling problem, male or female, actually? Uh, what should be their first step? So the first step is probably just to recognise they, they do have a problem because often people may be convincing themselves that they can keep it under control when they can't. Um, and then the second step is to go to the website, be gamble aware, or call the National Gambling Helpline on, on 0808802133. What is that? Let's do that one more time. 08. 0808802133. Very interesting. That's a fast say. Good luck with the campaign, uh, Zoe. We may come back to you uh, in a few weeks, months' time, see how it's going. That's Zoe Osmond, who is Chief Executive of GamblerWare, talking about this survey by her organisation, which has identified a million women in the UK suffering negative consequences as a result of gambling. If it's you, call that helpline. So it's now time for our regular City Update with no better person than Ruth Sunderland, who is, of course, Group Business Editor at the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. Ruth, sex scandals in the city, no bigger uh, uh, company than Rio Tinto. What's going on there and why should we be interested? Well, it's a disgraceful state of affairs by all accounts at Rio Tinto. Um, Just to set a bit of background for for your listeners, Andrew, Rio is one of the biggest mining companies on the FTSE 100 share index. Now, most of its operations are not in this country. Virtually none of its operations, in fact, are in this country. That doesn't really matter um, to to small investors in the UK and to anybody with a pension in this country because Rio is a big constituent of the FTSE 100 index, which means that we've all got our savings or pensions tied up with Rio, whether we realise it or not. So what happens there really is quite important to to all of us. And what's gone on is that... And a, a report in Australia to the working culture at Rio has really come up with some horrific findings. An independent inquiry into its operations in Australia was led by a lady called Elizabeth Broderick, who's Australia's former sexual discrimination um, commissioner. She discovered that women working for <clears throat> the women working for Anglo, 21 of them reported rape attempted rape or sexual assault in the past five years at work just incredible figures women were forced to put up with sexual harassment and sexism every day systemic bullying racism that was normalized um women being asked to do things like do the washing for their male colleagues um you know this this is really some quite shocking stuff there that you would you would be um you know you just would would imagine had gone out with the ark really um some women saying that they were afraid to tell their bosses that they were pregnant because they would either be demoted or lose their job and anyone who reported bullying felt that they had a good chance that they would just be told to toughen up for life at a global mining company 
Now, all of that, you know, you really would have thought it was unacceptable at any time, but certainly nowadays with so much, ostensibly so much more awareness of diversity and equality to see this kind of harmful behaviour is absolutely disgraceful. Now, I have to say, it hasn't had much of an, an effect on Rio's share price. Um, perhaps this is because this has happened in Australia and um, not, you know, hasn't happened here in the UK. But I think when people take cognizance of it, this is dangerous behaviour. No company can afford for this kind of thing to be to be happening, and and it really is just just disgraceful. And you never know, Ruth, um, when Australia when Australia's time difference and all that, it could easily start spreading across the um, across the globe, couldn't it? The, the ripples. I, I, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And what's gone on there is is that people who follow Rio will remember that it's only a, a short while since they lost a previous chief executive. He got the sack after Rio blew up um, an Aboriginal site. It's a sacred 46,000-year-old Aboriginal site called Dukan Gorge. And Rio just blew it up, you know, so with, with absolutely no regard for that heritage or the sacred nature of that, of that site. Um, so it's not as if they don't have form for behaving badly. And in the current environment, no company can afford that. You know, Rio is trying to say to everybody, well, we supply metals and minerals that are really important, you know, copper, titanium, um, cobalt. These are all um, key items that are used in, in products like smartphones, electric vehicles. You know, we need them if we're going to decarbonize our economy. So we need companies like Rio frankly to behave themselves indeed we do that's ruth sunderland who is of course the group business editor at the daily mail and the mail on sunday thanks for joining us so have those covid lockdowns which fortunately are a thing of the past we hope for good led to a surge in opioid addiction the pandemic caused a huge backlog of patients, of course, waiting to receive critical surgery. It led many doctors into prescribing more pain-relieving opiates than before, which has, I'm afraid, led to an increase in dependence across the country. Pat Hagen is the Daily Mail's good health writer and joins me now. Pat, how bad is it? It's potentially very bad for a number of reasons. So the UK, like many other countries around the world, has been sort of dealing with um, an opioid crisis, if you like, in recent years. Uh, now, this is, this is not, um, uh, we're not talking about illegal drug abuse here. We're talking about prescription medicines which are used routinely to deal with pain, but have a very addictive side effect. And this, um, this dependency has been growing for some time. And there has been, uh, been a series of measures in recent years to try and uh, address it and uh, it's an issue that the Daily Mail Good Health section has been campaigning on for a long time. What seems to have happened is that any progress may well have been undone by the effect of the pandemic which has delayed surgery for literally hundreds of thousands of patients um, and some preliminary research suggests now that many of those patients um, obviously, they're, they're awaiting major surgeries such as uh, hip or knee replacements, painful conditions, and those conditions are worsening as the delays uh, go on. Um, and some evidence suggests that the rate of prescribing of opioid drugs among this group um, has gone up by 40% since pre-pandemic. Now, 
that's the drugs that that's dealing with the pain but what it's not dealing with is helping those patients come off the drugs once they've had the surgery um, but they're potentially left addicted to these medicines which they were prescribed by the NHS to benefit them how addictive are they Surprisingly so. Um, so the drugs, these are drugs that are really meant for uh, emergency use. If you're in an accident, you break a, a bone or you're in a, you have serious trauma, these are the kind of drugs you'd be given. They're brilliant at relieving acute pain. They're not meant to be taken long term. If you buy a packet of codeine over the counter from a pharmacy, and codeine is a weak version of an opioid drug, the label will say, don't take this drug for more than three days or, or you could develop dependency. Now, probably most people don't, don't realize that. Um, and that's actually how um, experts think a lot of people, um, that's the entry level uh, drug, if you like, over the counter codeine. In fact, some countries such as Australia um, have banned the over the counter sale of codeine because of its addictive nature. So, um, the case study we interviewed for this piece was a, a, a lady who had, um, had surgery. She was given um, a, a stronger form of codeine <coughs> excuse me, um, after surgery to deal with the pain. And within a few weeks of taking it, within three to four weeks, she noticed that um, it, was having a, it was making her basically feel like a zombie. She was just distracted, couldn't concentrate, permanently exhausted. But when she tried to stop taking the drugs, the symptoms were even worse. She had acute stomach pains, um, exhaustion, um, sweating, really uncomfortable symptoms, which are indicative that of, of dependency forming within, you know, three three weeks or so of taking this medicine. Mm. Was there, if in hindsight, hindsight's very easy, Pat, of course, but um, in is is there a way the NHS could have avoided this? Were there other um, painkillers they could have prescribed people who weren't able to have these operations that would not have led to this addiction problem? And this is the difficult area. Um, there isn't an easy off-the-shelf solution. So what the charities, the arthritis charities, for example, what they recommend is trying the um, the more established, you know, the less addictive or non-addictive uh, painkillers like um, ibuprofen and paracetamol, um, but combining it with a whole range of other things like regular gentle exercise, swimming, yoga, stretching exercises, maybe even sort of, um, you know, counseling in the form of talking therapies, a package of things to help people cope with their chronic pain. Because these drugs aren't meant to be used in long-term chronic pain. They are used in cancer where they, where they do help. But for most people, say, with, you know, sore joints or um, uh, age-related issues like that, they're not really meant for use, to, to be used like that. But they are, they're easy. So, you, you know, the people that put on these drugs, they get immediate relief and then they end up on them and they kind of fall through the net. There's no regular system for vetting these patients on a regular basis saying, are you still on these drugs? You really shouldn't be. And that's how this epidemic of opioid dependency has really happened. It's happened by stealth almost. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, and um, it's going to, co- to clearly take, Pat, quite a lot of unpicking. Well, what's the, the, it's, it, it will take a lot of unpicking. And what some people are now calling for um, is a kind of structured service to help these people 
deal with their dependency because obviously they, they're given the drugs and then but they don't get any help to come off them and um, so some people will uh, try and go cold turkey which really isn't recommended uh, it can be really uncomfortable and unpleasant so what they need help with is what's called a tapering plan how to properly taper yourself off the drug over a period of weeks or even months by reducing it with very small doses and that will vary from one person to another according to what dose they're on and how long they've been on it and how dependent they are um, there is some guidance coming out from nice this health body in the next few months which it's hoped will give doctors um, an idea of how to do that how to help um, but um, but the worry is that um, some people who try to quit themselves get extreme withdrawal symptoms and then go back on the drugs will end up on them for even longer very worrying very worrying indeed that's pat hagan daily mail's good health writer talking about the surge in opioid addiction yet another unforeseen consequence of covid well that's all we've got time for today for the latest from the daily mail download the mail plus app every weekday at 5 p.m you can listen to me all over again i'm andrew pierce this is the andrew pierce show i'm going to be back with you tomorrow so have yourselves a very good evening and good night (laughs) 